Hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast of In Media Res, the podcast that uh, today is going to be a collaborative effort together with the research school Nika. So next to RMS, Nika is also a research school in the Netherlands, which is more focused on cultural studies, whereas we in media studies are focusing more, of course, on media studies in RMS. But Today we have a, a special event planned together with special guests and some of these special guests have come today to the podcast to talk about their expertise, their paths and also their experiences when it comes to the academic soft skills that they have acquired throughout the last couple of years. Our first speaker uh, is going to be a very interesting speaker from the University of Leiden and I'm going to ask her to introduce herself shortly. Hi, my name is Pepita Hesselbert. I am a media studies um, scholar um, with my footing also in political theory and um, literary theory, background in film studies, and I'm the director of NICA. All right, the director of NICA we have right here. So this is like the, the main point of departure that we're going to have when it comes to the whole cultural studies approach to this podcast as well. Um, Maybe first uh, start with your path within cultural studies and how you've come to the position that you're at right now. Well, um, formally, I have to correct you. It's cultural analysis, not cultural studies. But of course, these fields are closely related. I was a film and television student back then. And um, my past led me to um, teach before I had any ambitions to pursue a PhD or anything. So I taught for about 10 years at the university and at that point um, decided to do a PhD because I got bored. Mm. <laughs> and um, I suppose that got me into cultural analysis. I did my PhD with uh, the Amsterdam School of Cultural Analysis, uh, which has always been a safe harbor for me. And that, that idea of having a safe harbor for intellectual thought has always been very dear to me. Um, and I think that's that's the main thing that eventually led me to become director of Ask uh, of Nika. Yeah. So um, when it comes to the career that you've chosen, it's, it kind of seems that you've already made a choice for academia quite from the start in your in your study. Uh, am I correct uh, in that? Not at all. <laughs> it was chosen for me. That's what I always say. I I, I ended up talking to the professor at my defense, my 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 May defense. And uh, he said, did you ever think about teaching at a university? And I said, no, I, to be honest, I never gave it a, a thought. It was a different time back then. Uh, I was much less career minded than I see many of the young research MA students in particular and also PhD students. So um, and I said, um, send me some information and I got an email, welcome aboard. And before I knew it, I was teaching uh, at the University of Amsterdam and also um, coaching teams uh, in, in their education. So my, my initial career was very much um, teaching based, I would say, mm -hmm. and not research based. That came later. I was doing research, but I was doing research through teaching. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a bit more about the research in particular. What, what was the object of study uh, that you examined when it comes to the cultural analysis that uh, is so acquainted uh, to you? And how has that uh, also helps you further on in your teaching and the further research that you've done. I eventually got, um, I was working at the University of Utrecht at the time as a full-time teacher, more or less, and, um, and then decided to pursue a PhD, and that meant writing a grant application. <laughs> and the position that came up was in the field of um, cinema, philosophy, 
and something else. I forget what the third one was. Uh, It was at the University of Copenhagen and it was uh, a co-host position. So I was working half at the University of Copenhagen, half at the University of Amsterdam with uh, cultural analysis. And the object of study was really still um, the changing field of what I ended up calling contemporary cinematics. So um, I'm trained as an old school, almost old school film scholar. Uh, and these, you know, these discussions on film were very much rooted in psychoanalysis and literary theory. And I saw the field of cinema changing. And now, nowadays, it's quite, quite uh, common for everyone to watch films on their iPads and on their iPhones even. Uh, but, but back then, it was still cinema was still very much um, located in in the cinema and was expanding into the onto the streets i would almost say like literally you know moving moving images in 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 cityscape were quite new back then the possibilities of digital technology were expanding so i thought you know we have to change theory and start thinking differently about uh, how we can work with these these valuable theories of film in this new environment so i ended up writing a lot on uh, yeah, city environments that included uh, moving images, but also um, older films that were shown not no longer in the cinema, but uh, in, in in exhibition spaces where they would you know, be shown simultaneously. Um, you know, and really on the handheld aesthetics. So, so uh, the, the really the change of aesthetics uh, through the use of mobile phones and easy, easy uh, uh, accessible digital cameras. So that was quite a, quite exciting. So I ended up really write, writing about cinema, time, space, and these and the, and the changing conceptions of, uh, let's say, the subject, <laughs> if you want. Interesting topic. I'd, I'd like to build the bridge here a bit to the grant that you that you mentioned, because all the uh, things that you mentioned earlier are back then also were very contemporary. So there was a particular trend and you analyzed or at least wanted to apply particular theories to this trend. Was that um, very valuable uh, also in the way that you uh, proposed a proposal for a specific grant? Um, do you have to, sorry, did you have to write about a very current object to get a grant? In my experience, it's even more difficult to obtain grants writing on a contemporary issue. Um, I've tried after and I've also obtained another grant after uh, finishing my PhD. But um, if you write about a really contemporary topic, the field is often quite unexplored. And especially in it it very much differs than where you apply Mm -hmm. and what you apply for um, and what kind of committee is looking at your proposal. To see if, if, how can I say this uh, elegantly? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if a field is not not really explored yet, then you're making the field, so it's high risk, high gain research, and that doesn't always uh, work well with uh, institutions that provide grants that want security, mm-hmm. right? Secure outcomes. Mm-hmm. and so on so so writing about a contemporary issue is, is al- always quite a challenge and it's also necessary uh, so i think it also much depends so for me what really changed is that i also said we have to change the methodology the way we look at cinema so if if you start so if your methodology is quite um, rooted in a discipline then you can work on a contemporary issue that's quite attractive like a historian working with the the, the, the methods of history on a contemporary issue 
will get uh, will will be more likely to get a grant because because the topic is then trending, but the the discipline is safe. If you you know cross that bridge of challenging also the discipline, then um, you have to apply for institutions. I I feel <laughs> that are open to that high risk high gain research. So you mentioned that there is actually a pretty big distinction between the sort of fundings that you could get when it comes to grants. Could you maybe go through the specific options that a starting PhD scholar that is maybe currently self-funded and that would like to get a fund uh, could go through and what their differences are? What, what are the particular things that they would have to focus on for each of these different types of funding when it comes to their objective study? Yeah, so my, my advice really is always to go where the money is. That's the first principle. So to really look for the places where there's money available and look at the call, right? So sometimes they're really open and sometimes they're really specific. It also, I was talking to a PhD student just now and um, um, I realized that, or an aspiring PhD student, and they were constantly adapting their proposal to the funding uh, or uh, institution and even a topic and I, I you know you also have to be really you know solid on the topic that you want to work on and and from there on right towards any available funding mm. would be my advice having said that uh, there are less, uh, more conservative I, I always find NWO for my type of research slightly conservative because the, the, the and that has to do with the history of NWO and also the the, the um, the committees that that are available f for that or that are chosen for that and um, and the coming together of the humanities and social sciences and how that w works and sometimes doesn't work um, so so slightly more conservative uh, but you can work with that as well mm -hmm. European funding is more likely to be more high risk high gain it's also a lot of more, a lot of more paperwork and also a bit less available for PhD students on their own they have to be in a project mm -hmm. Uh, but every country has their own, say, NVO. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there's FVO in Flanders. There is um, the DKK in, in Denmark, where I got my funding. Um, I used to read grants for grant proposals for the F FVO, the, the Flemish um, um, institution that, that where you can obtain grants. And from every rewriting or writing towards a particular goal of a proposal, you learn. And you also learn from the critiques, even if they're uh, um, not always what you want to hear. <laughs> That's very understandable that writing a proposal is an iterative process and that any sort of feedback or criticism uh, that comes your way from perhaps a committee is very valuable for a newer version of the proposal. Let's delve bit deeper into the sort of conservatism mm. that comes with institutions such as, let's take MAO for now as the Dutch example. Um, any, do you have any particular tips or tricks, any skills that you give to aspiring PhD students that are aiming for an MAO fund in how to almost combat the sort of conservative tone that they would have to apply within their proposal? Yeah, so writing a proposal is a genre in itself, right? So you have to learn the language of, of proposal writing. In my experience, and I don't want to make any enemies, I know a lot of interesting research that got funding through NVO, and I know a lot of um, colleagues who've, who've given their time and energy to uh, assess these, these proposals. 
Uh, so it's not all, uh, but conservative. With conservative, I mean it's it's a little bit um, less high risk, high gain. So um, what that means concretely for a PhD student is that it helps to have consistency from writing a, a MA or research MA thesis towards writing a PhD proposal. So if there's if you can um, uh, expand on your research MA thesis or the topic or write in a similar line so that there's consistency that generally helps um, it also in my experience generally helps to be more discipline bound and from being discipline bound from there on be interdisciplinary to have really um, again high risk high gain interdisciplinary projects is more challenging that's <laughs> that's and I'm I'm not I'm and again uh, so my last application at NVO was also already some five five six seven years ago uh, so things do change and um, but I think consistency is is to have some consistency where you can where you can show the continuity of your PhD proposal with your research MA uh, project and that can be in terms of topic but also in terms of discipline or in terms of methodology doesn't have to be the one thing, but mm -hmm. to have consistent or to be able to show, narrate that that consistency really does help. Mm -hmm. And and it's it, I, I was talking to to a colleague the other day, here at Leiden University, um, a med medievalist, and he said, um, you know, I'm reading this proposal, I don't understand anything of it. And you have to imagine it's people like me reading your proposal. So mm -hmm. if you're really in the field of media studies or uh, cultural analysis, it does require to make your research accessible for people that are not uh, in the discipline, that are come from history or linguistics, because that's that's quite a, um, yeah there are always linguists on the <laughs> on the committees or always historians uh, because they they also generate a lot of research. So so they're broad committees. So you have to um, convince people from very different disciplines. So it needs to be it needs to be accessible somehow. Those are very clear tips that you're giving there. So the consistency is one of them, staying close to a discipline to perhaps from there on move to interdisciplinarity and also to be accessible uh, when it comes to the way that you're writing for people also outside of the field. That could be in a committee. Um, let's zoom in a bit on um, the way that grant proposals are currently being assessed because uh, while you've been with grant proposals maybe you've seen quite some of them throughout the last couple of years do you uh, see a current trend maybe when it comes to how grants are currently being assessed is there a specific theme that's being prioritized not so much maybe in its content but maybe also in its methodology or in the sort of consistency that's uh, uh, considered to be quite valuable right now through these organizations such as MBO? To be honest, not not really. I think um, no, and, and not really. Inter it, uh, no real trends, um, but again, very different kinds of institutions that dare to take very different kinds of risks, also with research. I think that's the, the, the clearest answer. So, um, of course, uh, there is a trend where you, you know, I've seen a lot of um, historical research uh, or linguistic research working with digital media. So the digital is a field where we have to um, uh, relate to somehow. 
Yeah, I understand. So I actually hear two things, because on the one hand, the, the tips that you gave earlier were about the sort of consistency, staying close to a discipline, all these things. But on the other hand, I also hear risk as a reoccurring theme throughout the conversation so far. So how do you, as a uh, aspiring PhD student, find the right balance between taking the risk while also holding on to all these tips that you gave earlier? That's a very um, um, challenging thin line, I would say. <laughs> and there's the pragmatics, right? Uh, the, the very pragmatic side to, to obtaining, wanting to obtain a, a PhD or aspiring to be to a PhD, which is just... Um, for some, a ticket out of something or into something, into academia or out of a, a life um, that is um, that offers less opportunities. I would also say, at the university, I'm 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 past way past the PhD and postdoc uh, um, <laughs> uh, position, right? So uh, we're still encouraged to write PhD proposal or write proposals for research grants, and my advice is always to 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 really look at your interest. And from there on, decide if it really is if if it really fits the trajectory of wanting to write a PhD, because there's also still always the p possibility of writing a book, <laughs> right? Yeah. So so aspiring a PhD and writing a, a proposal to write a PhD also um, challenges you to take position within an academic field, and sometimes that's necessary because your ambition is within academia or challenges some of the premises of academic thought sometimes it doesn't and i think you should be really honest also in assessing your own interest and your own ambitions there uh, and stay really close to your interests and topic i think that's very good advice that there's always the possibility to just also write a book you don't have to move into this academic discourse or within that field uh, within your career. But let's assume for now that um, I am a PhD student, I got a fund through MAO, and now uh, I, I've completed my PhD. Am I now stuck with academia? <laughs> because I've done so much research for the last four, maybe even more years, and I haven't necessarily seen too much of the world outside the walls of academia. Is there also enough possibility for me to work outside the realms of academia then? Um, I should hope you're not stuck. <laughs> and it really does depend on, on uh, oneself. Uh, but I think, you know, um, so back in the days, when I, even when I finished my, my MA, it was even before it was called an MA in the Netherlands, um, I ended up working in a film production company. And um, they wouldn't hire me in the first instance because I was too highly trained and too theoretical. And I immediately turned that around and showed them what, how that theory translated into practice. But I think there is a risk of, um, and, it, and I think it goes for university overall, not just for, for aspiring, and, uh, uh, aspiring academics, aspiring PhD students, finishing PhD students. It also goes for... Um, assistant professors, associate professors, and professors, there, there's some sort of, as if it's a, um, it's a one-way trajectory. You go into the academia and it's only one way up. I think that's, I think part of the, the challenge here or part of the problem here is this, an imposter syndrome that we <laughs> put onto ourselves. Like I'm, and I've become good at this. I'm, I'm I must not be good. I'm, I'm I've, you know, if I've, I've excelled here. So um, I'm sure I'm not good at good enough 
at something else. And I think that's that's just not the case. Uh, but we need to, and I think perhaps in the humanities, we're the humanities are are generally non non vocational, right? So so, um, but I think I've I've read some research l- lately that um, that says we're actually high, mostly skilled people, and a lot of people that finish a degree in the humanities, whether it's BA, MA, or PhD, end up at at a plethora of positions, uh, often in higher management, education, and so on, uh, precisely because they have the skills that are required to make the society better. (laughs) Right? So curiosity, what have you, um, curiosity, and you have empathy, uh, proactive, uh, solution-oriented. So these are all skills that you learn even while writing a PhD. What we do not learn and what's often not discussed within humanities is how we can translate our skills and our knowledge to... Uh, to society or to real life problems and I think that's a gap where we can work with very fascinating and uh, I completely agree with uh, everything that you're saying that the humanities is kind of like the the field in which we're building all of these soft skills but indeed there might be too big of a gap uh, there when it comes to actually putting that into practice would you have some some tips uh, and tricks maybe on how maybe PhDs or RMAs within media studies or cultural analysis could, well, ga- could bridge that gap. How do they do that? It, in part, it is, I think, one way to go is to, to, to really take time to reflect on the skills that you've built and how that translates into uh, real, real life problems, right? So it, it reflection is, and I would like to see move towards a system where reflection uh, becomes part of the soft skills that we teach our PhD students and research MA students, so that we, uh, as a university, take on the responsibility of uh, uh, putting this into our curriculum, right? So so I think to put the responsibility with the students alone, PhD or research MA students is um, they're not the problem owner, <laughs> right? So, but of course, your, your question is very pragmatic. So if I'm now finished as a PhD student, if I'm now a research MA student, and I don't want to pursue a career in academia, or I cannot yet pursue a career in academia, how then can I translate my skills, or can I translate what I know into another kind of job, <laughs> basically, or another way of earning my living, because that's the reality. And I think perhaps just... Um, to do away with the imposter syndrome and to really learn to trust what you can do uh, and to start talking to companies that interest you <laughs> just to have that conversation without expectation in the first place. There is a huge you know, shortage of personnel. You are needed. I would like to see it more constructively. I would like to see it more... I would really would like to see a humanities turn within... Um, the fields of uh, media production, the fields of cultural production, where we really bring our theory into the field. Because I think, you know, that's where we're trained, that there's such a shortage of people who can really reflect on the implication, implication of digitization, of the mass production of culture. We can do that. We, we just have to be learn how to work with that knowledge and skills within a field that is broader than academia. Thank you. Let's move to the the final question that we always ask to our guests in this podcast. And that's if you have any specific tips, tricks, or last pieces of advice for 
PhDs, RMA students that either are in cultural analysis or in media studies. And they can be linked to the stuff that we've already discussed, but can also be outside of that scope. So I think my main tip here is, is also half pitching my uh, latest obsession <laughs> and project. Um, the first thing to take care of as a, an aspiring or pursuing PhD student or someone leaving academia is your own well-being. And I think that's also something that we really have to invest in, to listen to what your body needs, what your mind really needs, instead of just being lived by the expectations of a university, of a society, of your study, study program. So for me, um, an investment in the skill of taking care of your own well-being without turning it into a productivity hack if I'm mindful, <laughs> I become more concentrated, I can be a better scholar. Now, really, really listening, learning to listen to what your heart needs, what your co-students, your community needs, would benefit from most, what society needs to really learn to listen. That would be the skill that I would advise you to develop. Thank you, Pepita. Thank you for this uh, very inspiring conversation. This is one of the three episodes that we are recording today at the event that we're together planning with Nika. Uh, stay tuned because there will be two other episodes that touch upon the same topic when it comes to positioning yourself as a researcher. So stay tuned. Bye bye.